in the afternoon or whenever's good for you, maybe even a morning. But I'd love to uh, get to know you if I haven't had a chance to meet you, tell you a little bit more about the church. You can get to know us a little better, um, and uh, we look forward to that. Also, um, Susan is going to make a quick announcement um, about a care ministry that we're going to be starting here uh, now, actually. Hi, I am Susan Maynard, and we're going to kickstart our new baby ministry. We don't have a name quite for it yet, but... Um, we have a couple new babies that are coming within the next month, if not the next few months, and we're going to be using Care Calendar to set up an opportunity for us to m- meals and just be kind of know what's going on with them if they need some extra support. So if you are interested in being involved in this, we're just going to do it through email, and then you can sign up, and all the information will be on the Care Calendar. I'll explain it all in an email. If you will, on your its connection card, just write down your email and indicate that you are interested in being connected with this. Um, And then this week, I will shoot out an email to everybody kind of explaining, and you'll go to a a second site to sign up, which will have all the information and directions. We do have a baby due December 1st, so this gives us a great opportunity to jump in. Um, Becca and Bill Gooden, they're actually not here today, but um, they're... I don't have a baby due December 1st. <laughs> Becca and Bill do. But that's why we're ex- excited. This is an opportunity to kickstart right now because um, there's a need right now. And also, if you are having a baby and I, you know, and I haven't met you or know you, um, I'm often up here and, and don't get out to meet you, please email me that as well and say, hey, my, we have a baby due in January. And that way we can start getting you on the calendar um, for, for some meals. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Susan. We did. Um, we were at a church that did that when, when we first moved here and had Jameson and uh, Rebecca had Jameson and the, you know, within the first week we started getting meals. I don't know if it was every, I don't know if it was every night, but I mean, we started, you know, people volunteered and brought meals and it was fantastic because, you know, it took a load off of Rebecca and it was just a really nice gesture. So um, if you want to get involved with that, just put your name on the connection card and say, you know, baby care ministry or something like that. And we will make sure to get you connected with it. Yeah, and then put your connection card in the, in the basket. Okay, so um, as you know, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark for the last seven weeks. And uh, as we go through it, Jesus keeps sort of pushing the envelope, okay? He keeps doing things and saying things that initially excite the people that listen, interest the people that listen, But a few weeks ago, we started learning about things that he started saying and things that he started doing, claims that he started making that began to uh, cause some dissension, cause some tension among the religious leaders of the day and the political leaders of the day. Because he started doing things and making claims that you can't make unless you, well, as we'll get into it, unless you are more than just a guy, more than just a human being on the planet, okay? He starts making claims that are outrageous unless you are, unless you are him, uh, basically. So today we're going to talk about, uh, making the leap. Jesus does something today in this passage that in my mind, it sort of brings this conflict even higher than it was. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, um, after Jesus healed a, a paralyzed man in the, in the, uh, synagogue, his hand was withered, and Jesus healed it, and it was on the Sabbath. So technically, it may have been breaking some law, some rule, and the Pharisees, you know, got very angry. And then they hooked up with the Herodians, who were a political party, and uh, their arch nemesis. But it, it, these these two parties got together. If you can imagine, uh, uh, oh, who, who would it be? It would be like the uh, 
the Green Party and the Tea Party getting together uh, and sitting down and going out. You know, these guys were like on the other each end of the political spectrum. They got together to come after Jesus. So, but this week he 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 makes a leap. He says something. He does something that is even in some respects more outrageous uh, than what we've seen him do. Um, when I was uh, 16, um, my dad came to me and said, uh, Brent, would you be interested in going skydiving? Uh, now, my dad had never gone skydiving. I had never gone skydiving. And frankly, I was actually terrified of heights when I was a, a younger guy. But I certainly wasn't going to, you know, chicken out in front of my dad. So I go, yeah, let's go. So we went down. I can't remember where it is now, but it's somewhere sort of southern, south, southeastern Missouri, I think, um, or southwest Missouri, I guess it was. And we, we, we go out to, to this skydiving place. We go through the training. You know, they do training where you jump off of a, you know, bale of hay and you kind of show you how to roll if you, if it comes to that. Um, and they teach you how you pack up the suit. They teach you how you, uh, you know, you, they, t- they teach you the whole process, and then they take you up on this little plane. So uh, my dad and I get in this little tiny nuts and bolts kind of plane. There weren't even seats. You're kind of cramped down into the, into the, uh, you know, the body of this plane. There was a trainer. There was a pilot. Then there was my dad, and there was me. So we get up there, and I'm like, I can't breathe because I am just like – terrified of what we're doing. We're flying, getting higher and higher. Um, and he goes, we get up to the height and they say, Mr. Rome, your turn. So my dad climbs out onto the, the, uh, the step, holds on to the strut. So there's the wing and then there's this like little strut that holds it on. He climbs out and I can't really see him at that point. And next thing I know he's gone. And I'm like, and I'm like looking out the windows and I finally see, you know, his chute was open. I go, okay, good. So they're like, okay, are you ready? Uh, like I said, I was 16. I was absolutely, totally mortified, completely terrified to do this. Um, but what they did tell you is that once you get out on the step, if you get out of the plane, if you scoot out the door and your feet are on the step, you're not coming back in because it's more dangerous for you to come back in than it is for you to go out. So sitting there on the edge of the, of the edge of the plane, putting your feet on the step and going, um, man, is this really what I want to be doing? Um, and what you do is you climb out onto the strut, you hold onto the strut with two hands, and then you let your feet go. And then you're literally (laughs) hanging from the strut of this plane. And then you let go. Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I've ever done anything as terrifying in my life, but I also don't know if I've ever done anything quite as exhilarating. You know, once you actually make the leap, once you let go, you experience something that prior to that millisecond you have never experienced before. Uh, and it is amazing and it is rush and it's it was it was really really uh, a great experience and a very bonding experience for my dad and I. I ended up going back and doing it several times, um, uh, s- seven times to be exact. But uh, <laughs> um, so in this passage, Jesus does something that sort of pushes him. 
past, he sort of crosses the line. He, he makes a, a leap into um, a new status with respect to the people that he's talking to that he can't come back. This is like you've, you've, you've gone beyond the line. You can't come back now. You've said things you can't unsay. You're, he, he does some things that he can't undo in this passage we're about to read. And interestingly, also, he, he, he asks us in this passage to make that leap with him. So let's, let's read it. Uh, it's Mark chapter 3. We're going to go 20 through 35. And I'll just read through the whole passage, and then we'll kind of break down into, into little parts of it. So uh, Jesus went home. Uh, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. You remember each time he comes into town, you know, he goes out to the, to the sea and people come from all around and he gets in a boat and he kind of hangs out there. And then he comes back. And when he comes in town, it's just incre- It's just the place is packed. It's not clear if he's at his home, his home home where he grew up or if he's back at Simon's house where he keeps going, you know, throughout. the. So it's not clear exactly, but he's um, he's he's at one of those two houses. Uh, and the crowd was so thick that he, they weren't even able to eat. When his family heard about this, this is the first time we've seen his family and, and Mark, um, and we'll talk about them. But when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. His own family. He's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said he has Beelzebub in him. Beelzebub is basically a, a, a name for the devil or Satan or evil, uh, an evil uh, uh, force. Um, he has Beelzebub in him, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So the Pharisees are saying, no, he's not crazy. He's a sorcerer. He's soaked and de- he's demon-possessed. So he summoned them, and he spoke to them in parables. Here's what he said. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rebels against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. On the other hand, no one can enter a strong man's house and rob his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he will rob his house. I assure you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they blaspheme. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying, because the Pharisees were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside the door, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers and your sisters are outside. They're asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So these are some really uh, potent and intense claims that Jesus is making in this passage. Um, Three sort of principles that I think we draw from these passages that I want to kind of drill down on with you today. One is that Jesus defies definition. He defies definition. Jesus destroys evil. He destroys evil. And Jesus demands everything. Um, Please forgive me for all using alliteration and all of them starting with D because I know some people think that's corny, but I just couldn't help myself, okay? Uh, Jesus defies definition, destroys evil, and demands everything. So 
in this first passage, what's, what's amazing about this fir- the first part of the passage is that Jesus comes back and his family think he's crazy. A couple things that are, I love about this. First of all, we don't know which members of his family thought he was crazy. But Jesus had, as we learned in Matthew, Jesus had at least four brothers, okay? And he had at least two sisters. So Jesus came from a family of at least seven. Um, and they come and they want to restrain him. They basically want to do an intervention and say, you know, we're stopping him from, from continuing down this path because he's crazy. What I love about that, a couple things. One is, for those of us that are um, sort of just learning to learning about Jesus, considering him, considering following him, there's a certain comfort in knowing that even his own brothers and sisters didn't know what to make of him at first. Um, and so those of you who are sort of thinking about what Jesus is or who he is, you know, even his own brothers and sisters, it took them a while. Now, it turns out that while he was um, before his crucifixion, his family, his brothers did not believe in him. They did not believe he was the Savior. They did not believe that he was the Lord. They did not believe he was Messiah. After his crucifixion, they saw him resurrected, and then they became believers. But what I love about this um, is that, you know, they, in, in the gospel, they're not embarrassed to say that even his own family thought he was crazy, okay? Um, and the Pharisees thought that he was demon-possessed. So in the first century, I'm going to just give you a little bit of background. I hope it's not terribly boring. But in the first century, there were three theories about Jesus, okay, about who he was, about his identity. There's, there's, there's sort of four theories now. But at the, in the first century, there were only three. Number one, he's crazy. Number two, he's demon-possessed. And number three, he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God, you know, the Lord, uh, he kept, he kept, uh, saying things that, that required you to adopt one of those theories about him. Um, you know, he kept saying things like, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I have the power to forgive sins. Uh, I'm the Christ, the son of God. I mean, he, he's saying things that required the first century people around him to, you know, take one of those positions. Nobody in the first century was saying, you know that Jesus, he is a, um, he's a really, really swell guy. Um, great moral teacher, super neat guy. Um, not the son of God, but just, just a good guy. Nobody was saying that, okay? Because he did not, his claims were so outrageous and so um, outlandish that you couldn't say that about him. You had to adopt one of these three positions, okay? Now... Um, a sort of, you know, it's not a new position, but a, a different position has kind of come in vogue. And that's if, if this, this uh, you know, liar, lunatic, or Lord sort of thing that we just talked about, it's called, theologians and apologists call that the trilemma, okay? Now there's sort of, I guess you would call it a quad, quadlemma. So there's a fourth theory about Jesus, and a lot of people adopt this theory. And this is one that, you know, just, you know, the normal person that's not a Christian on the street would say something to this effect. Jesus was a great moral teacher. Jesus was a very self-actualized, self-realized person. Uh, He said things that were misunderstood by his followers and or, um, you know, later, later church, uh, the church tried to consolidate power and made up stories about him and claimed that he was divine when in fact he wasn't. So that's, that's kind of the fourth theory about him. 
Um, and that's what I'll call the legend theory, that this is a legend. Well, um, there are a few problems. Well, I, and I put a thing in your bulletin. That, was, that is the theory that Thomas Jefferson had about Jesus. Jefferson, as you remember, I don't know if we, we talked about this once before. Jefferson actually took a razor blade and cut out all of the portions of, this, of the Gospels that talked about Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Lord, anything um, uh, supernatural. Thomas Jefferson took a razor blade and cut all that out and created the Jeffersonian Bible, which is a Bible that just has the teachings and but cuts out the identity. Um, you know, because, you know, some people just, it, it's, it's hard. It's hard to accept, first of all, that Jesus was a lunatic because, you know, his teachings are so sublime and so beautiful. And when you read them, you, they resonate with you and you go, my gosh, this is, I get this, you know. So it's very, very difficult <clears throat> to say that he's a lunatic or a liar, you know. He's, um, so, so unless we be- believe that he's the Christ, we've kind of adopted this, this other theory that it's, um, you know, that he's, that there's a legend about him that isn't true. The problems with that theory are, there are, there are a few problems with that theory. One is, <clears throat> all of the earliest sources that discuss Jesus discuss him in terms like we're reading Mark, where he's making these claims. He is saying that I am the Christ. He is saying that I'm the Messiah. So all of the early texts about him are saying that that's what he's claiming to be, okay? Um, Another problem is that all of the followers, all of the early followers of Jesus, uh, this is the view that they espoused. This is the view that the eyewitnesses said that he claimed to be the Christ, and he performed these miracles. And these guys, all the apostles died, were martyred for advocating that position. So it's, it just becomes more difficult to believe that they're making up a story and they're all willing to go and die for that story. Um, and finally, there's just no textual, there's no historical evidence that Jesus was just a good guy. You know, there's just no, none of the early texts say, hey, you know, he was just a, he was just a really good guy and a good teacher. So we're kind of back to this trilemma of who is Jesus? Who is he? Um, and the scripture gives us this amazing layout uh, of, is he crazy? Is he, you know, some kind of crazy sorcerer? Or is he, in fact, who he claims to be? Is he, in fact, um, the Messiah? C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis was a great scholar and uh, a really brilliant mind. And he says, I quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And they say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says C.S. Lewis. A man who merely, uh, who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. So C.S. Lewis says, look, you don't really have a lot of choices. You're faced with this, and you know, you read the scripture, you're faced with this amazing text of a man who claims to be divine, and it puts you as the reader in this position to go, who is he? Who is he really? Um, 
you know, I personally, for many years, as, as many of you know, grew up in the church, uh, was sort of, was taught the teachings of, you know, the Bible and the scripture. And, and, and at about 18, 19, and, I, and I've told you this, 19, 20, right in that, I just began to doubt everything, began to question everything, and before long drifted away completely from believing in the Bible or God or Jesus or anything like that. And I pretty much espoused this fourth position, which was, you know, great moral teacher, very interesting guy, but I don't believe that he is the Christ. I don't believe that he's the Messiah. Uh, And I maintained that position for several years. It wasn't until, you know, life circumstances caused me to deeply reflect on my own beliefs that I began to drill down very, very carefully on the, the scriptures and on the writings about Jesus. And it, you know, over the course of several months, I came to the conclusion that these teachings that I'm reading uh, were just they were so compelling. They, they seemed so right. They seemed so true. Could they have been crafted by someone who was a raging lunatic? Or could they have been crafted by someone who was, you know, demonic and evil and was trying to, you know, hoodwink everyone? Or were they, in fact, written about a man who really was the Christ, the Messiah? And... This trilemma that we're talking about, this, this reasoning, it will not prove to you that Jesus is, is the Son of God. It will not prove that to you. But it, if you very, very carefully analyze the evidence, I think that you will at least come to the conclusion um, that it is a, I found it to be the most probable choice. Now, ultimately, you open your heart and Jesus calls you and brings you in. But, but if your reason is stopping you from being a follower of Christ, then I would say, drill deeper, read more, think harder, ask tougher questions, go deeper, because there is a, there is a truth in this scripture that will, that, that will completely and radically alter your life if you really, really pursue it. Um, the, the second part that we that we pull from this scripture is that Jesus destroys evil. Um, I think we get an image of Jesus sort of in popular culture. that kind of looks kind of like this, you know, have you, have you seen this kind of thing? So this is not a guy that I feel particularly, this is not a guy I would want to go into battle with. Like, you know, he looks nice. He looks fine. But, but that picture of Jesus it does not evoke what I think is how Jesus really, really is presented in the gospel. All right? We learn in the gospel that Jesus is a laborer. He is a carpenter. He is a hardworking guy. He slept outside. He was a force. He was a powerful, powerful guy. There's a picture of, uh, these are, I don't know what he looked like. You know, he was a Palestinian Jewish man. Um, this is the hands of a carpenter. Um, but I, I get an image, I get a feeling about Jesus when I read these scriptures. I sense that he is not a soft guy. He is a strong, powerful, tough individual. Um, in fact, there are passages where, for example, um, at one point Jesus enters the temple and he is so angry, he is so furious about the, um, 
the corruption that's going on in the temple, that the scripture says that he weaves a whip and he takes it into the temple and he and he and he runs out the money changers, the people who are, you know, corrupt. And he overturns the tables and he pours out the money and he lets the pigeons that, and, the, and the animals that they've got there, he lets them all go. I mean, this is a guy who is capable of doing, you know, being a little bit scary. I mean, he's, a t- he's, not, he's, not, he's not a wimp. I mean, he's a tough guy. Um, to sit there and, and, you know, braid a cord that you know you're going to go and use. I mean, this is, uh, this is pre- premeditated, you know, assault if you want to get technical. So um, uh, he, he, he's, he's a tough tough guy. Um, and when he starts talking to these Pharisees, now I love this part of the passage because if you remember a few weeks ago, the Pharisees said, look, you're committing blasphemy because you claim to be able to forgive sins. And you remember blasphemy is if you impute some, something to God that some, uh, attribute to God that he doesn't have, you know, if you say God is, you know, um, God is, you know, silly, all right, well, that's, that's not an attribute that God has. He's not silly. So by saying that, that could be blasphemy. If you take uh, an attribute that God has and you say he doesn't have it, if you say God is not just, that's also blasphemy. And if you, um, if you pretend to have an attribute of God and you're not God, that's also blasphemy. You remember when, when, he, when Jesus said, I can forgive sins, they said, oh, that's blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, yes. Um, and so in this case... Jesus turns the tables on them, and this is where I think he, he sort of takes a leap into, a, into a, a way that he will not be coming back from. As we march to the book of Mark, you'll start to see that he has taken a step across the line, and he will not be coming back. And what he does is he says, you are committing blasphemy by saying that I am casting out devils by the power of devils. Because you are attributing something to me that is not a part of me. You're saying that I am evil. And that's blasphemy because what he's saying is because I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I'm divine. And you are indicating or trying to, you are, you are, you are saying that I am evil. And that's when he says, if you keep doing that, That is a sin that I cannot forgive you from. If you keep attributing my power to the devil, if you keep saying that that what God is doing is actually evil, that is something that I cannot forgive you of. And and that is a a radical shift in the way he's approaching and being approached and he's approaching. Now he is on the offense. Before they were asking him questions and he was taking, you know, he's like, well, explaining things. Now he's going, look, no, you're wrong. You're wrong, and you better watch it because it, it'll get dangerous. Um, it's, a lot of scholars think that he's referring, uh, well, let, let me just quickly, on, that, on the parable where he says that the strong man and the binding up of the strong man, no one can rob the strong man's house. You know, you scratch your head and go, what is he talking about? Okay, so he says, no one can rob a strong man unless you first go to that strong man's house and you bind up that strong man, then you can go and rob the strong man. Uh, so who, who is the strong man? Who, where's the house? Who's robbing who? Who's the robber? What's amazing about this passage is that Jesus is saying, the house is basically the world, okay? 
and the world is in the power or under the oppressive forces of evil. Um, And I am coming, Jesus says, I am coming to bind up that evil and rob the house. What does that mean, rob the, the house? Jesus is coming to liberate us from the sin and from the oppression and from the darkness that is in the world and that is in our lives. You know, he is coming to free your heart from the sin, you know, the darkness, those things that bind you, those things. Jesus says, you know, I, I, I have come to, to liberate you, to set the captives free. He has come, and, and, and so you can think of the house as your heart. You can think of your ho- the house as the world. But Jesus is coming and saying, I'm coming to bind up that, that, that strong man, that evil force that's in your life, and liberate you, rob you, literally rob you, from that oppressive place. Um, so he's, a lot of scholars think he's referring back to Isaiah 49. I'm just going to read this uh, to you. Isaiah 49, 24 says, Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children. I will save. What is our takeaway from here? Jesus will fiercely defend the weak. Jesus will ruthlessly drive out and destroy evil. Uh, If you need a protector, if you need a friend, if you need justice in your life, Jesus is saying, I bring that. That's what I am here for. That's what I do. Uh, when you submit yourself to the power of God, when you, when you truly submit your life to God, then you are following, you, you cannot be oppressed by someone on the earth because you have now given your life to someone who is more powerful, stronger, uh, and, and, and more fierce than any power that you could ever encounter here on earth. So when you truly give your life to God, you have a protector, you have a friend, you have someone that loves you deeply and will, and will um, keep you from harm. Um, and finally, Jesus demands everything. This is a, an amazing part of the scripture, and it almost sounds cruel. When Jesus' uh, Jesus's mother and his brothers came and started talking to him, um, or, or asked for him, they were outside of the house, and they said, we'd like to talk to Jesus. And he turns to the people that are around him and he said, who's my mother and my brother and my sisters? You are. You're doing the work of uh, you that follow, the, follow God are my brothers and my sister and my mother. Um, it sounds cruel. And if you think about it from a, that culture, that, it's a patriarchal culture. It's a very family-oriented culture. And, and, you know, for him to say that is basically saying, look, I am, uh, th- this is a brand new thing, and I am requiring an undivided allegiance uh, that is beyond anything that you could ever imagine. I want to read you just another scripture um, in Matthew where he expands on this. He says, the person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And this is the line that kills me. Anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life for my sake will find it. 
you know, um, when I, when I became a Christian, ultimately when I finally submitted my life to God and became a Christian, I realized that this has to be the absolute number one most important thing in my life. This has to be it. This is it. Everything is subservient to that. The level of commitment, the level of the depth of commitment, it's, it's not, you know, religion and Jesus, these are not, Jesus is not something that's sort of like on the sideline, like I've got work, I've got family, I've got this, you know, sports, and then I've got my Jesus part, and then I've got that. No, it's not like that. Jesus is saying, no, everything that you are, everything that you think, everything that you do, your body, mind, soul, when you come to me, it's all mine, he says. You know, when Rebecca and I, and I, you know, I may have, I may have been like, um, I don't know how wise it was to say this, but when Rebecca and I first got together um, and we started, you know, you know, where you get to that point where you start to say, I love you and all that kind of stuff. And we started dating, you know, I, I remember telling her, uh, I said, look, I got, you know, I, and I was a relatively new Christian at that point, you know, a couple of years. And, and I go, you are the second best thing that has ever happened to me. <laughs> Not terribly romantic. Um, and, you know, what I was saying is, look, God has changed my life, radically changed my life. And I am belong to him 100%. And what I can give to you is everything except what's one thing is more important, you know. You know, and in a way, Rebecca actually found that comforting. And here's what's fascinating about this. When you actually do give your life to God wholly and completely, it expands your capacity to love other people. So the amount of love, the amount of commitment, the amount of, um, of you know, adoration and admiration that I could give Rebecca was expanded exponentially because God is first, you know. And Jesus is saying, look, you've got to love me with everything. And when you do that, the, the, the paradox is that when you lose your life, you find it. When you try to hold on to your life, you lose it. The paradox, and then Jesus is saying, look, if you give me everything, then everything else in your life, I will give back to you so deeply, so fully, so completely that you cannot possibly fathom the richness of the life that is available to you when you Make the leap when you commit to me with everything that you are. Um, you know, I, uh, my, uh, my, my dad, when they moved to, so my, my parents moved to, uh, to Phoenix in the nineties and he was, um, he really felt called to go out to Phoenix and plant the church, start a brand new church out in Phoenix. Uh, he was a very well-respected guy in, in our denomination, and he was, you know, well-known, and he had pastored big churches, and he had done, done really well. People loved him and admired him. And he was in his 50s, and he said he just felt like that was the thing to do. And he, you know, packed up the family and moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and planted a church. Um, the very first service, guess how many people there were? 
Well, I'll give you a hint. There were five members in our family, so we know that those five were there. And then there was one sweet older couple, Norval and Rosella Wildman, and they were there. So our launch service, we had seven people. Uh, and, but he gave, his, he gave his life to that. He felt called to that, and at 50 years old, gave up, you know, friends, gave up, you know, respect in his career, gave up the, you know, possibility. I mean, it, the possibility was that he could have just completely crashed and burned, gave up security. I mean, gave up all this stuff, and he went out, and it was amazing to me to watch him because he, he would, you know, we, we were all living together at that time, and he would get up in the morning. He would dress up like he was getting ready to go to the office and he would walk upstairs to his desk and he would sit down and he would just jump right in. And, you know, it wasn't long until, you know, there were nine people and then there were 11 people. And then when the Cliff Schertz family joined us, they had like eight kids. So that doubled the congregation. Uh, and, and he slowly, by the grace of God, built a church that has just radically changed the lives of so many people out in Arizona. Two other churches have planted from that church. Um, and now there are, there are another couple churches planting off of that. I mean, it, he gave, you know, he gave, this, this is only just a sort of a, a normal worldly example of what I think Jesus is talking about, you know, and we recognize this in our life too. When you commit to something fully, when you give it everything, you get so much back. When you have one foot in and one foot out, when you are sort of half there and half here, you know, it's, it's difficult. You struggle. When you're equivocal, the Bible says a double-minded man is evil in all his ways. He doesn't, he's not either here and he's not there. But Jesus is saying, give everything. Give everything and you will, you will experience a life that is far beyond anything that you can imagine. So I just want to encourage you with this passage today. You know, if you're, if you're not sure about the identity of Jesus, and you're thinking about it, please do not feel remotely worried about asking the tough questions. Ask the tough questions. Drill deeper. Go further. Think hard, you know, because the truth will prevail. The truth can take care of itself. There's nothing that you can ask. And if you're a Christian, and you, but you have doubts, don't let your doubts frighten you from asking hard questions. Ask the hard questions. You know, don't be reluctant to do that. The truth can handle your questions. Uh, if you are a, a Christian, if you are already a follower of Christ, um, then you know that Christ comes into your heart and can just destroy the evil in your heart. You know, he just can do that. Uh, and, and ultimately, he asks of us everything. So don't be... Reluctant, don't be scared to give him everything. At some point, you know, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, and if you open the door just a little bit, I'll come in. And I'll sit down. I'll dine with you and you with me. Um, the, the life that is available to you in Christ is, I assure you, far beyond any kind of life that you could construct for yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage that is challenging and uh, puzzling and exciting all at the same time. 
there's an adventure before us, God. There's an adventure in following you. And we ask, Lord, that you give us the courage, the knowledge, the strength to follow you and to make the leap into your grace and to your loving arms. And all these things we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we take a few minutes at this time in each service. Uh, if you are here and you just want to reflect and think about um, what you've heard and think about the scripture, uh, please feel absolutely comfortable to do that.